for the last couple of weeks, I have asked a couple of thought-provoking questions. The first question I asked two weeks ago was, if you identify as a Christian, why did you become one? I said that a lot of times people are motivated by fear, and yet the bigger calling to become a Christian is to look to Jesus to be redeemed from the self-consuming way of life that we have. Last week I asked the question, well, what is the Bible and what do we do with it? You know, all religions are built on some source of authority, and for Christians it is the Bible, and that's a tricky thing because the Bible is a complicated book. And so many times people will try to take the Bible literally, and they do not take it seriously. In other words, sometimes there's a greater message in the Bible than trying to figure out dates and places and names and all these type of things. So it's important, I think, to understand that the Bible is something that is a source of wisdom, and uh, when we use it as a source of wisdom, we can learn from all parts of it. So third question today that begins our new series called Buried Treasure is this question, what is your buried treasure? What is your buried treasure? I think everyone has a concept of a buried treasure, something inside of them that will bring them happiness and joy. We all want to be happy. Uh, I think it's what we want for ourselves. I think it's what we want for the people that we love. And it is what we perceive that brings us that happiness and joy that we will then try to protect so that we will not lose it or have it taken from us. Jesus talks about a buried treasure as a source of happiness and joy. He calls it the kingdom of God. And Jesus uses these parables to convey deep truths using images and stories because parables have the potential to help us contemplate something deeper than maybe a straightforward statement. So in the parable that we read earlier, what we find is that in Matthew chapter 13, verse 43 and verse 44, it says, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and in his joy he went and sold all he had and bought that field. Now, of course, there's a lot of questions that come up. Well, what is the treasure in the field? And secondly, what does it mean sell everything to obtain it? Well, that's what we're going to try to understand in the weeks ahead. It seems to me that the parable is conveying something that sometimes people miss. Because at the beginning of Matthew chapter 13, what we find is that Jesus launches into the parable of the sower and the seed, and then there's the parable of the yeast and the parable of the pearl of um, great price and all those types of things. But when the disciples asked Jesus the question, well, why do you talk to the crowd in parables? He gave them this answer in Matthew 13:10. After the disciples say, why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus answered, to you has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. I want you to think about that for a moment. We live among the kingdoms of men. Okay, we live in the United States, but other people live all the way around the world, and there's some type of governance 
there's some type of authority that puts that structure in place. And we might call those the kingdom of men. There's a lot of good that can come out of it. There's a lot of bad that can come out of it. And we just basically follow the rules of it or the law of it. But the secrets of the kingdom of God is that there's another way to do life. And this kingdom is a different way of looking at life than the kingdoms of men. So how is the kingdom of God like a buried treasure? What makes it so valuable? Well, in the first century, think of this for a moment, that when the Roman Empire was expanding their kingdom, people who owned a little bit would tend to hide it if they sensed an invasion was coming into their little village. So they would take something and they would bury it in a field, hoping that it would be there after the trauma and danger is gone. And so this parable is kind of built upon people that are living in vulnerability and what little they have, they are going to bury to protect it from the invaders. Now, in order to illustrate that, I want you to think of the movie Shawshank Redemption. How many of you have seen that movie, Shawshank Redemption? Okay. So in 1994, this film was made about a banker by the name of Andy that spends nearly two decades in the Shawshank State Prison. Here's another question. You can tour the, where they, uh, they filmed that. Have any of you gone through that at all? No? I want to, and every year goes by, and I never get a chance to do it. But I think it would be interesting to see. So Andy, after years of planning and effort, he tunnels out of his cell, and he escapes through the prison sewer system, and he heads off to Mexico with a fortune that he had embezzled from a corrupt prison warden. Well, at the end of the movie, this individual, Andy, had a best friend in prison by the name of Red. And um, he told Red that when he gets out of prison, when he comes up for parole, to go to this little town, Buxton, Maine, and to look for a field. And if he follows the stone wall, he will find a large tree at the end of that stone wall, and it is there he will find a rock that is out of place. Not like any of the other rocks, it's a volcanic rock. It's a large rock, but if he will move it aside, he will find under it a metal box. And in that metal box are both money and directions on how Red can find Andy. And so that's what Red does. He sets out on this journey. He hitchhikes and walks for hours until he finds this farm and he finds this tree and he finds this rock and he turns it over and he finds this metal box. And the final scene of the movie is the two of them are reunited in joy and in happiness. So think about this for a moment. What if, though, what if we change the plot of the movie for a moment? What if Red had to first buy the farm before he would be allowed to find the treasure? Would he do it? You see, in the movie, he just walks onto this field, he walks along the stone wall, he finds the tree, right? And he finds the metal box. But would he sacrifice, would he give of himself if he had to buy the farm to find the treasure? And that's kind of what's being said here. I think in Christianity, 
we are so accustomed to grace, and rightfully so, it's sort of like red, finding the buried treasure. It's free, it's of no cost to us, and we are thankful to God that we receive it. However, if we want a deeper inner life, if we want to find joy, if we want to find peace, if we want to find happiness, are we willing to go the extra mile? Are we willing to buy the farm, you might say, to be able to find what God is giving to us? You see, there is a buried treasure inside each and every one of us, whether we realize it or not. It is the presence of God that is already there. And it is the promise of God that nothing can separate us from his love. It has been said, so long as it is hidden from us, um, well, then we'll just have to make do being happy in the world in which we are. And sometimes religion gets in the way of that pursuit a little bit, because the message is often, God really doesn't want you to be happy. He wants you to be obedient. Well, we've got to dig a little deeper. We need to seek it out and find it and then prioritize it. We might say that we all need to search for a heart of gold. So, as we already read, it's out of the heart comes that which is good or bad. So to know how much this treasure is worth, we have to dig deeper. And to do that, we have to ask ourselves uh, a reflective question. And that is, how happy am I really? How happy am I really? Um, is this treasure that I pursue in this life, in the kingdoms of men, is it a lasting treasure or is it just a moment's pleasure? Is it just there for a moment and then vanishes? Now, we might, might want to sidestep that question because it actually is quite a vulnerable question that we ask. But I think it's important to understand that the value of the treasure depends often on our willingness to put the effort into it to seek it out. So there's various resources that I will re reference to you in the course of this series. This one came out a number of years ago, actually it was 2009, by Gretchen Rubin, and it's a book called The Happiness Project. And what she does in the book, which is interesting, because you will not seek out that treasure all at one time, it's a process that takes some time. And what she does in this book is she uses every month of the year and talks about her own journey to kind of sort through what brings her happiness and joy and what doesn't. And each month she kind of chronicles this journey and as she breaks it down, she is telling us a little bit of what worked for her and what didn't work for her. This might be a great thing to think about. Maybe you do it at the start of the year or at the beginning of this school year even. You take this book and you read maybe just the chapter for that month, think about it, and contemplate it. So how happy are we really? That's a real sensitive question. And the reason it needs to be asked is because of what the numbers are showing. Depression, anxiety, and frustration sometimes is found among even the youngest people that have the greatest potential in front of them. Um, a survey conducted by the American College Health Association found that 52%, 52% of college students re uh, reported feeling hopeless, hopeless, which is quite amazing considering they're getting a college education and they have their future 
in front of them. And it's talking about feelings of sadness, depression, anxiety that contributes to this hopelessness. Now, it's not just college students. It's everybody. Did you know since 2012, the United Nations publishes a study called the World Happiness Report? Have you ever heard of that before? The World Happiness Report. And the report outlines the state of happiness, both its cause and its lack of it, um, through each year. Now, this the findings of this is remarkable. I don't know where you think the United States ranks, but it's not first. So in the World Happiness Report, five years ago, the United States ranked 18th in the world. It's come up a little bit. This year, it's 14th. So who are the individuals that are at the top? Any guess? It's Nordic. So the top five are the Netherlands, Switzerland, Denmark, Iceland, and number one on the World Happiness Report, Finland. Now, there's a lot that goes into that, but what's remarkable is over the years since this started, um, these five Nordic countries always hit the top five. Finland, Denmark, Norway, Sweden, and Iceland. So the question is, why are they happier than other countries? Or specifically, why are they happier than we are as a nation? Well, there's a lot of things that contribute to a citizen's happiness. No matter whether we look at the state of democracy or political rights or lack of corruption or trust between citizens or a sense of safety or social cohesion, gender equality, uh, equal distribution of resources, whatever it is, these Nordic countries are characterized by a virtuous cycle, it seems, in which various key institutional and cultural indicators of good society feed into each other, and that then enables them to have a better functioning democracy, they have more generous and effective social programs, uh, they have lower levels of crime and corruption as well. So it is remarkable uh, to see that other parts of the world seem to be keen in on seeking this buried treasure, where we find joy and happiness. So those countries where democracy is dysfunctional, greedy, and prohibits benefits will often find higher crime and corruption. So. Happiness, you might say, is proportionate between the desire to pursue a heart of gold versus a heart of greed. And so the greedier we are, it seems, our levels of happiness and joy go down. You know, the kingdoms of men find it harder to deliver joy and happiness than the kingdom of God. And so the Bible talks about joy and happiness. And many times we'll talk about joy, but not happiness as much, because joy sounds more spiritual, doesn't it? Well, they are kissing cousins, joy and happiness. They go together. And happiness is often tied to the word happening. So a lot of times Christian circles will say, well, you can have joy even though you're not happy. 
because happiness depends on what's happening to you versus joy is an internal quality. Well, that might be true, but I do think the truth is that if you have joy, you will have higher levels of happiness, and that can rise and fall depending on the happenings in our life. Now, here's a promise that Jesus gives to us in John 15, verse 11. He says, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be complete. Let me say that again. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and your joy may be complete. John 15, 11. Have you ever thought of Jesus as a joyful person? I don't know that people often have that image. Because we see Jesus in his passion going to the cross, we see his suffering. But he describes himself as a joyful person, and that's what he wants to give to people that are his followers. 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 24, Paul says this, We are workers with you for your joy. We are workers with you for your joy. Joy. So one of the things that we are trying to do is work with each other so that we can experience joy and happiness in this one shot that we have called life. Now, we all know a lot of things go wrong in life, don't we? And there are certain happenings that shrink our joy and diminish our happiness. Um, but I think the key is that often that joy and happiness level rises and falls with circumstances and how we want to control those circumstances. What if joy and happiness goes deeper than that? I want you to imagine you get up in the morning, you get your cup of coffee, and all of a sudden the phone rings. It's the Noble Foundation. Yes, that awards the Nobel Peace Prize, and they tell you, you're this year's winner. Would you be happy? You would be, because there's a million dollars that comes along with that prize, okay? You would be very happy, and if you verified it, you'd go, oh my goodness, this is great. However, the next morning, you get a phone call from your doctor, and your doctor has just run a series of tests, and he wants to do some further tests because he is concerned about some of the things that he sees. Your happiness would go to worry, wouldn't it? Especially if it's something that's perceived to be something life-threatening. You might have a million dollars in your back pocket, but because this happens, what good is that, right? What good is that if I don't have my health and that type of thing? Now. Sometimes in life, you just can't escape the burden of grief, the burden of sadness, the burden of worry. But here's some interesting statistics that are so interesting. There are social scientists talk about happiness and joy as kind of a conscious and unconscious decision making, and they call it effective forecasting. In other words, if this would happen, I'd be happy. If this would happen, I'd have joy. So what happens, though, is whether you get a phone call 
informing you you won a million dollars or you get a phone call telling you there are concerns about your health, that's going to ebb and flow. But sociologists and psychologists say that it levels out. So there's this, this psychologist by the name of Sonia, I'm going to mispronounce her last name, I, I know it is, Lou Bum Risky, uh, that is out at the University of California. And she has studied happiness, and she says, interestingly enough, 50% of happiness is determined by your DNA. 50% of your happiness is determined by your DNA, and that's why happiness remains fairly consistent from birth to death, because there's an equilibrium that you, uh, you hit, you know, you uh, balance out there. We have upward spikes when things are good and happening around us, and then we have downward spikes, and she calls that the other 40%. In other words, 50% is DNA, and that's out of our control. 10% can be kind of controlled by you, but the other 40% can't be controlled by you, and the only thing that you can do is to guard the condition of your heart while you're going through it. Does that make sense? Okay, you guard the condition of your heart so that you don't become clinically depressed or full of anxiety or what, whatever it may be. So we all do if I had type of thing. If I had a better job with a better pay, I'd be happier. The research shows people who make less than $30,000 a year uh, believe they'd be happier if they made $50,000 a year. Now, ironically, people who make $100,000 a year believe they'd be happier if they made $250,000 a year. Do you see how this game goes? It's never enough. In other words, um, there is built within us this, I wish I had, or I'd be better off if. I'd be happier as soon as. Sometimes it's an accomplishment. I'd be happy as soon as I find a better job, a new house, a new car. Um, whatever that temporary bump in happiness might be. Well, there is a certain arrival fallacy that we live by because as soon as we achieve that, we're on to the next thing to make us happier for that next happiness bump. Does that make sense? So 50% of it is DNA, 10% of it can be something you control, but 40% of it is adjustment. And here's where I would say, it is on the onus of our walk with God that it is then more than any other time that we seek the buried treasure of God's presence in our life and that we pursue, no matter what happens in our life, to find a heart of gold rather than a heart of greed. Happiness depends on the condition of your heart more than it does the condition of your circumstances. And I'm not diminishing heartache. I'm not diminishing disappointment. I'm not diminishing grief. What I am saying, though, is how we condition our heart is extremely important. And um, I was thinking a little bit about this. So here's how I want to summarize this message before we close here this morning. Most people, I'm not saying all people, but most people have a heart of greed rather than a heart of gold. And consequently, that is one of the main reasons they don't have as much 
joy and happiness with what they would really find if they were seeking the buried treasure that is found in the parable. Let me say it again as a summary. Most people have a heart of greed. If I only had, if I did have, if I could accomplish, whatever it may be, most people have a heart of greed rather than a heart of gold. And consequently, that's one of the reasons that joy and happiness is so short-lived. So I dip back into my love for old rock and roll and acoustic music and, and the 70s in particular. You remember a few weeks ago, I uh, collaborated on a project, uh, and uh, I did again this week. I took uh, Neil Young's um, Heart of Gold, and what I did is I changed the middle verse. So um, I want to play that for you and see if you resonate with it, okay? Here we go. I want to live, I want to give, I've been a miner for a heart of gold, it's these expressions I never give, that keeps me searching for a heart of gold, and I'm getting old. Keep me searching for a heart of gold, and I'm getting old. I've seen the upside, I've seen the downside. In my search for a heart of gold, it's been on my mind such a long time. Keeps me searching for a heart of gold, and I'm getting old. Keeps me searching for a heart of gold, and I'm getting old. Keep me searching for a heart of gold. Keep me searching and I'm growing old. Keep me searching for a heart of gold. I've been a miner for a heart of gold. And I'm getting old. I think we can all resonate with that, right? So would you stand with me? I want to close with a couple of thoughts, and we will be finished with our service here this morning. In your worship guide, there is a closing that I'd like for you to take a look at. This is a prayer by Richard Niebuhr, and uh, I think it's so uh, appropriate. I think most of us have heard the serenity prayer before. Uh, Richard Niebuhr changes just a few lines of it 
And here's what he says. May this be your blessing for the day and on into the God, give me grace to accept with serenity the things that cannot be changed, courage to change the things which should be changed, and the wisdom to distinguish the one from the other. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as a pathway to peace, taking as Jesus did this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that you will make all things right if I surrender to your will so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. Let's say that last line together. So that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. Amen and amen. Thanks for being with us this morning. I hope you have a great uh, week ahead. Go Browns, right? Okay, have a great day, everyone.